This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, a little bit of a history lesson. It's 100 years since talks began to end the, the Irish War of Independence. Uh, the talks lasted a couple of months and led to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which essentially established the Irish Free States. We look back out, it's a fascinating look back actually at the how negotiations were carried out, the doodles that they did in the margins, the parties that the Irish in particular uh, seemed to have uh, during it. Uh, we talked to the Irish culture minister, but also the Irish ambassador, not just about what happened 100 years ago, but also what's happening right now as the Brexit talks get underway again. So that's coming up in our big thing in a moment. But first, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkstein and David Awanovich. Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Here they are. Then it's Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Daniel. Well, you've become like the sort of Noel Edmonds of segues. That was amazing. Happy <laughs> now, Thanks so much for that. And uh, David Ivanovich? Yes, actually, there is a good argument for banning segues. And since you're talking about embarrassment, almost all the embarrassment that happens on radio happens in the segue. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to have you both here. Um, uh, talking of uh, um, uh, introductions, as we were, uh, I was told, so we had Peter Brooks on yesterday, who said that uh, at the Cheltenham Literature Festival at the weekend, he was supposed to be interviewed by David Aronovich uh, and was instead interviewed by Daniel Finkelstein, which he said was like uh, Hugh Grant being uh, pulling out and being replaced by, who oh, who did he say? It wasn't, it was being replaced, George Clooney. Captain Mannering, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered how you, fa- how you felt, uh, David, about being likened to Hugh Grant and, and Danny, Danny, uh, you were George Clooney. I was really, I was really sorry to to, to, to miss that, and to uh, uh, although I'm sure Danny actually did it better than than I was. I mean, uh, I had, uh, the whole thing was as a result of a series of problems uh, for one of my family with um, 
uh, health problems, which are now resolved, but which have given me a very kind of dark feeling about this autumn and winter in the NHS, indeed, I have to say. What, just in terms of trying to interact with the NHS, get seen uh, at, and that sort of thing? At, at, at every level, I mean, at, at the point where it's very hard to get a GP to get to look down somebody's abscessed throat because you're trying to do it another way, to the weights in various a uh, um, es to the restrictions on staff, shortages of staff, actually when you get into the hospitals and so on, and this is all before we've hit the uh, problem of, of possible, you know, large levels of flu combining with continuous levels of COVID. And I just, so, so I'm afraid I come into your kind of jolly, <laughs> into our jolly setting in a kind of slightly sombre mood. And in, I mean, I know it's just anecdotal and so on, and people have had other experiences, but, no. you know, looking at things as I've looked at them over the years, this, this feels ominous to me. It does, yeah. It's more, it's more than anecdotal. I mean, it's the reason why the government's obviously put all that money in. They obviously fear this is going to happen too, and the money won't necessarily uh, mean that it doesn't happen. But, but, but I mean, the money that they've, you know, they've announced the money that they're going to raise from a tax rise. But I mean, <clears throat> that's not that's some some way down the track, yet, isn't it? Uh, the tax rises, so. the money will come, but the they, they've got to drive the the waiting lists down. Um, and I mean, this is just one of the a lot of different things where there's a dislocation effect from what we've experienced in the last uh, year and a half, which is almost as serious as the effect itself. And I think we haven't necessarily come to terms with that. So what David's doing is reporting from the front, I think. And I, I suppose the whole in a way, David, you say it's just anecdotal, but that is politics to some extent, isn't it? Is that people base their view of what's going on in the country largely on their own experience and unfortunately as we go into the winter and you know whether it is actually covid all the flu all the terrible cold and bugs that are going around on top of all the usual stuff that the nhs is dealing with people's personal experience of that really shapes their their view of things uh, yeah, yes, it does to uh, to a significant extent. I mean, it's worth remembering that at any given time, most people aren't going into hospital and aren't having these experiences. So you can never be entirely sure what the uh, political consequence of it would be. I mean, I'm very suspicious of merely anecdotal reporting because I'm aware of its uh, shortfalls. And I don't want to, if you like, to kind of add to the cacophony of people putting out badly sourced opinions merely on the basis that a cab driver has said something to them or something like that. Um, but looking at the report from the select committees um, that's just been released, I had a chance to kind of uh, look through them. Uh, and it's kind of it's rather interesting the ways in which it sometimes pulls its punches and other ways in which it doesn't. But one of the things that we can say about the preparation problems is that what we have an NHS which has been under-resourced for the challenges that it meets for whatever reasons those are that that under-resource now has uh, uh is now combined with the effects as danny says of the last year and a half of the uh, of the pandemic uh, and that actually this is a kind of this is symbolic of a series of problems when i was listening to the uh, ifs talking the institute for fiscal studies talking about the the forthcoming budget and about the difficulty that Rishi Sunak would have in doing anything but keeping a cap on, say, local authority spending and spending on justice and the courts. Well, local authorities are in a state of semi-crisis, and they are responsible also for significant bits of funding of the kinds of areas that we're talking about, social care and so on, um, uh, uh, being, being a case in point. And the justice system is in 
a total crisis. You're having to wait years and years and years to get, or have to several years, before cases come to court. That's not justice. And after a while, people's confidence in the justice system can break down. And when that happens, you have a very big problem. So I come into this, you know, one of the, I, I've been off the air with you because you've been at the party conferences and so on, and the people have been talking at the party conference. And I feel like you and they, obviously not you, because you've been more realistic, have been off planet for a while you know just kind of in a sort of slightly different places and i this terrible feeling of these kind of gathering together of these problems in the real world outside which i got no sense of from the can say from the conservative party conference i'm not sure i got much of a sense of it from the labor party no, i think that's totally right i mean one of the really striking things was just how and that's true of both party conferences actually it has to be said you know uh, the labor party conference in particular you know the fuel crisis was the was the dominant story of, of that week. And it never really seemed to, you know, what's going on in the real world never seems to in, in, intrude. And the Tory party covers last week was 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 extraordinary um, it, for its total disregard for what was actually happening in the real world. And, you know, Boris Johnson's speech, you know, whether it was... Well, OK, yeah. so can I just... I, I just want to take issue with that slightly. So first of all, I should say, I completely agree with David, I've written about this, about the justice system. And clearly, it's also true that the NHS didn't have the capacity to deal with the sort of problems that we're dealing with. Um, but whether it is true that uh, people's universal experience is made up of those problems, when, as David said, lots of people don't go to hospital and they don't come in touch with the justice system. In other words, uh, whether or not um, a more optimistic view of life is on another planet depends on what your personal experience is, right? So I, I certainly agreed with my colleague Ian Martin. He actually made me really, really rethink it, that Boris's speech... Um, was uh, insufficiently serious given the, t the note, the temper of the times. But I should also say two things. One in response to you, Matt, which is not everyone's experience is, you know, as dark as that. And one in response to David. I, I completely agree with you. But does this necessarily mean it would have been the right thing to spend even more money on healthcare, right? We can, in fact, spend literally every penny that any of us earned all on healthcare, right? And you could you could justify all of it, and all of it would save lives, and all of it would make people's lives better, except for the fact that we wouldn't have any money to eat, right? So the question is whether or not uh, it's whether or not it's sensible to do these things has got to depend on what else, what are the other consequences of it? Maybe. The right decision is over time to uh, let people have slightly more expensive houses and eat better and travel more um, in, uh, and then end up with these kind of problems from time to time because the NHS doesn't have that resilience. Is it necessarily the right thing to do? Uh, uh, by the way, these are genuine questions. I'm not, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't even know what I think about it. But they are, you can't just, we can't just say, you know, we're not spending enough money on the justice system. Uh, poor people haven't got enough income and uh, the uh, the NHS doesn't work. And then, and, and then not think about the fact that these have huge financial consequences well, within some sort of limited income. Uh, the, the, these are indeed entirely fair questions. Uh, they would be even fairer as put if it wasn't for the fact that there are other countries who have different policies which we can or outlooks which we can actually examine and look at. So I was in Germany on the night of the German election. Um, uh, the German health system is pretty good. Uh, and so on, and they somehow managed to afford it. Actually, our They're richer than us, David. 
Uh, yeah, they are they are richer than us, but so is the French health system better than ours as well. Yeah, um, they're also rich. And, yeah, uh, they're, they're a bit richer. Well, in that case, well, I think we ought to examine why it is that the French and the Germans are richer. Than Correct. Us. That's the core question. You're right. <laughs> well, that, that's well, exactly well, what we. That's exactly what we should spend a lot of our time on uh, on that question primarily. Well, well I, I don't. Well, I don't. I, it's hard to demur from that uh, uh, in any way. But it's also fair to say. I mean, let me take you an, uh, an example, Danny, of something which could raise a significant amount of revenue from a tax base that we've declared as being important, but that we've not now changed or altered since 1991 when council tax was brought in. We've not had a revaluation in this country since we brought the tax in. It's ridiculous. Uh, And the reason for it is because all parties are terrified of loss aversion, of losers uh, in that system. We are charging people a lot of tax, though, David. I mean, we're not undertaxed as a country, right? I mean, there have been times when you could make that argument, but we are, we are, we just... You know, we've got resource, a certain amount of resources. And if you look, I know this will sound a bit funny, but if you looked back to 1950, okay, we're spending seven times more than we did in 1950 on the NHS. And the main reason for that is because we're a lot richer. We've also made some policy decisions, but mainly because we're a lot richer. And so obviously there are some things which you can look at and say, we can't buy those things because we don't have the money for them. And and we can't just say uh, we should be buying them. We've also got to consider, well, what would we be losing if we bought those things? And that is real things people would have to pay real money for them well okay i'm i'm i I think what i'm saying is that when it comes to let's say uh health uh and to bring a i i think it is worth trying to bring our people up to the level of health enjoyed by our major competitors in europe that's what they should expect and doing those things which are necessary and insofar as those countries have a higher tax base than we do and some of them certainly do then in that case i would be in favor of paying that so i would make that trade-off and i don't think I would make that trade-off and necessarily suffer hugely as a consequence. I suppose that going right back to the original point about the party conferences, it, it, the conversation that you two have just been having is much more uh, serious and interesting than anything that was played out at either of the, of the party conferences um, over the last two weeks. And in fact, I suppose the point, Danny, is it, it's totally right to say that not everyone is having a, you know, a miserable time or gloomy, but actually to some extent it's the job of government, or at least an aspirational government, to address the people who are having a tough time rather than going around saying pretending that everything is fine when you're making a speech you obviously tend to think who is my audience when i'm making this speech and people tend to think the audience the people in front of me and they're probably right in the sense that although you say to them you know don't forget your audience is the country in fact most of the country isn't listening to you so they do tend to speak to the things that make their audience feel happy. I mean, the conferences might be better if we if we made the Labour Party uh, shadow cabinet make their speeches to the Tory conference and the Tory <laughs> uh, cabinet make their speeches to the Labour conference. You'd get much more much more nuanced like and much political more wife swap. Thing. It would be quite a good a good thing to do, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very good idea. Although it, that does feel like something that could go on for weeks. But anyway, um, I tell you what, let's move on because there's some other, other things I want to ask you about uh, in the news today. This story sort of completely caught me off guard. Sally Rooney, I confess I've not read any of her books, but I'm aware that, that people are a big fan of hers, um, has uh, decided she doesn't want her latest book um, translated into Hebrew as, as some sort of protest against Israel. Um, which I found slightly baffling because I'd have thought as an author you just want to sell more books. What, what do you make of this, Danny? 
Well, look, I'm just uh, writing a book about my parents' story. And in the end, uh, lots of people found they had nowhere whatsoever to go. Some people who came out of Belson with my mother ended up going round in a boat round and round Marseille Harbour before being sent off to Philippeville in Algeria. Um, and um, the creation of a state of Israel was somewhere which was necessary as a refuge for Jews. And it's it was interesting in the 1930s everywhere in the 1920s and 30s in Germany there were signs you know Jews go to Palestine um, which my grandfather had to cope with and now people like Sally Rumi are like Jews get out of Palestine and you sort of ask yourself the question well where do you want the Jews to actually go so I don't disagree agree with her that there are things with the Israeli government like with any that you might wish to protest about and um and I have been concerned about some policies but um to single out you know it's quite inter an interesting thing to single out of all the languages oh well I'll not do Hebrew then um and I'm sure that she's having it translated into languages of all sorts of governments against whom she has no protest whatsoever as I understand it, what she's done um, is to say to the Hebrew publishers, the Israeli publishers that published her first two books, uh, I don't want you to publish my book in Israel. Um, uh, given that there is not another publisher uh, uh, who she approves of, uh, and the reason for that is uh, actually given as uh, boycott, cultural boycott of Israel. She is one of those people who supports a cultural boycott, uh, economic boycott of Israel. Um, and so the effect of this is that the book won't be translated into Hebrew. Um, and I, I guess, you know, maybe if a Palestinian Arab publishing house were to publish it in Hebrew, she'd say yes to that. Um, uh, so what she's effectively doing is what all kind of cultural boycotters of Israel are saying, which is this place is so uniquely bad and appalling and awful that we will have nothing to do with it or its people until they do whatever the change in policies the people who want the change in policies want, which in some cases is no more nor less than an end to the occupation of the uh, Palestinian territories, but for others is quite clearly an end to the state of Israel itself. But the one thing I do think about, about this is I think that it often this position, particularly amongst kind of, if you like, sort of younger Western intellectuals, comes from a really profound ignorance uh, of history, um, uh, because I think their default position actually is they wish Israel had never been created in 1948. They think it was a huge imposition on the Palestinians and everything's kind of gone to, to rubbish since then. And actually, in effect, you should kind of roll that back. Um, and the point that Dan is making is absolutely apropos. It was a totally logical thing for Jews in the wake of the Second World War. Actually, totally logical as it turns out before the Second World War, I think for Jews to want to do, because the ones that survived did it, uh, to go to the uh, to go to Palestine and want to form a homeland there and so on. And although that is a very big problem and a tragedy for Palestinians, nevertheless. No, very few people who are around in 1946 to 1948, other than the British government who tried to stop it, didn't think that this was an absolutely necessary and moral thing to happen. Yeah, my grandfather was was opposed to the creation of the state of Israel before the Second World War. He wrote a book about it, best selling book about it, actually, in Germany. Uh, and uh, but obviously he changed his mind once his family had been in uh, concentration camps and, uh, you know, many of them had died. And um, one of the few things that was 
had protected them at points had been the possibility of going to Palestine. Uh, and it's all very well to say that that state shouldn't have been created. But you, what was the solution to the problem for lots and lots of Jewish people? And that, by the way, was explicitly the decision of the United Nations when it, when it considered this topic, wanting not to create a state of Israel, not wanting not to agree to it anyway. And they decided to agree to it for that reason. So I do, I agree. I think, unfortunately, it's just profound ignorance. And for her to pick on, um, you know, on the Jewish state of all the places in the world where there are human rights problems, well, it's, you know, I think she'll just have to live with her decision, is all I can say. Daniel Finkstein and David are one of its that, and of course you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Coming up, we look back 100 years since the negotiations which created the Irish Free State. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. So, on October the 11th, 1921, negotiations began on a landmark agreement which led to the creation of the Irish Free State. Until the early part of the 20th century, the whole of Ireland had been directly ruled by Britain. Nationalists wanted to break free, and in 1919, Sinn Féin set up a rival government in Dublin. The move triggered the Irish War of Independence, with the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA, targeting uh, the British. But the question of home rule had dogged British politics for decades. Well, a new exhibition marking the talks which led to the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1922 has opened today at the British Academy. And I went down there last night for a sneak preview to find out exactly what the talks were all about. I spoke to the Irish Culture Minister, Catherine Martin, and the Irish Ambassador to the UK, Adrian O'Neill. But first, I spoke to the Director of Ireland's National Archives, Orla McBride, who showed me around the exhibition of notes and papers from the negotiations themselves. (laughs) 
There was a truce between Ireland and Great Britain on the 11th of July 1921 and following the truce there was an agreement that both sides, that Great Britain and Ireland would enter into negotiations or discussions in relation to a peace treaty. So what you have here, we're presenting you with the Irish plenipotentiaries and there were five of them and they came over representing Dáil Éireann which was the Irish government and then they had... Uh, they had a secretariat, they had servants, they had bodyguards, they had... There were 24 that comprised the Irish delegation that came over to, to London on this day, the 11th of October, 100 years ago, to commence negotiations um, with the British government. The British government um, delegation... They were led by Lloyd George um, and there were seven uh, negotiators as part of the British delegation. So we had Lord Birkenhead, um, Austin, uh, Austin Chamberlain, Winston Churchill, Greenwood, Hewart and Worthington Evans. And then they were also led by officials, you know, a secretariat that were part of that process. So they came over the first day of negotiations was on the 11th of October. And we have here um, as part of the exhibition, we have the instructions to the plenipotentiaries from the cabinet back in Ireland in terms of that they have full powers it was understood that any decision that would be reached would have to go back to the main cabinet for agreement before they could sign in. Because there was a big discussion in Ireland wasn't it about who, who was going to come? Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So they sent five. Um, so you hear that you have them, Arthur Griffiths, Michael Collins, Robert Barton, and they were three government ministers. And then you had other, two other, uh, Chuck the Doll, as we call them, who are, who are members of parliament in effect, um, Eamon Duggan and George Gavin Duffy. So they came over, negotiations went on for two months. The Irish lived here. Did they know, I was going to say, when they arrived, did they know how long they were going to be here for? They didn't, but they took out, they took out rolling leases on two oh. houses. So one in Hans Place and one in Cadogan Gardens. So they lived in those houses. The servants lived there, the, some of the wives came over and they were their, their centres of administration for the plenipotentiaries while they were here. So it was, you know, when they would finish in Downing Street, they would come back, they'd have a meeting, they'd discuss uh, proceedings in relation to the next day. But it was also their home. So what we have here are records really relating to the period that these men and women spent in, in, in London. So we have here um, a, a, a receipt in relation to the... Uh, uh, a temporary phone line being put in at Cadogan Gardens. Here, obviously, when they were arriving every day to Downing Street, they didn't want to walk to, to Downing Street from their lodgings, so they hired Rolls Royces. Um, <laughs> you also see over here that there are bills from Harrods and invoices from Harrods for parties. So you can see. Well, they here. enjoyed themselves yeah, while they were here. Yeah, they had fancy <laughs> baskets and doilies, and then they had dinners, and then there was a massive event on the 26th of October in 1921 in the Royal Albert Hall, and they filled the Royal Albert Hall of, P of the London Irish, in, in effect, who came to meet the plenipotentiary. So here you have the programme, um, and here there you were, have... were celebrity, you know, they were well-known figures. And, and you can see from some of the, the Pathé footage that we have, the streets were thronged with people every day at Downing Street cheering them on um, and, and supporting them, really, in this quest for, for independence. I'm just looking here, uh, there's a menu here from a dinner on the 10th of November 1921. The items on the menu were given satirical names with a choice of starters including economic cutlets with reparation gravy and minced ulster with northeast sauce. Uh, according to Cathy McKenna, the event culminated Michael Collins and other members of the IRA and IRB having a food fight and throwing coal at one another. 
Yes, so they did enjoy themselves. <laughs> so it wasn't just the heavy political yeah. negotiations. And how, how were they going into Downing Street every day? Yeah. How often was it, that happening? No, you can imagine. So they had, um, so obviously the, you know, the British cabinet were also trying to run um, the affairs here. So the meetings would happen at different times, different days, and also in the evening. And then they, they established sub-conferences to look at particular themes, so be it defence, security, finance, etc. And different members of the plenipotentiaries would, would go to meetings to represent those particular themes. But they might have happened in Churchill's house at 10 o'clock at night. They may have happened in Lord Birkenhead's chambers. So it wasn't just the Downing Street negotiations where you had the seven and the five across the table from each other. There were more intense discussions where they were getting into the into the meat of it really and to try and iron out the areas of tension between the two sides. Here you have, for example, because so we have some of the, the private papers in the plenipotentiaries. So here, for example, you have Robert Barton did a, a, a little drawing of the, the table plan. So you can see Lord George sat uh, across from, from Griffith. They were both leading the, the, um, the delegations, Churchill opposite Collins, etc. Um, and here we have little notes that they were passing over and back. So it's a bit like ourselves. You're texting somebody under the table yeah. nowadays. They were sending notes, you know, when it got to key, key um, discussions discussions or whatever so you know this note here is about the ports and about the payment of port and other duties and a, and a bit of doodling as well and a bit of a bit, a bit of doodling yes, that's robert barton's doodle <laughs> We, we don't know who it's of, but but we all have our, our we all have our suspicions as to which member of of the british delegation it is um, and then these are some of the the the, the minutes as things are becoming very intense in those last hours um, in Downing Street, here's the sub-conference um, at 10 Downing Street at 3 o'clock and then at 11.30 to 2.30 in the morning. Wow. And if you see here, at 2.15am we signed the document. So that's when the treaty was signed, at 2.15 in the morning. And these are the notes of that final night and the final discussions that um, Arthur Griffith kept on that evening. And it says at the end, this is a very hasty and imperfect sketch of what happened at a prolonged conference on four occasions, uh, during which it was on the point of bursting to fragments. Uh, but they got it over the line. So that's on the 6th of, 6th of December. So it's a good two months after they first started. That's correct, yeah. And here we have um, uh, both treaties. So... You'll see on this side, this is the, the, um, the Irish uh, Treaty. So it's signed first by the Irish and then on behalf of the British delegation on the right-hand side. But the British copy, the British sign on the left-hand side and the Irish sign on the right. And you'll see here that one signature is kind of pasted on and it's a different colour. What happened was... The three that were present in Downing Street, Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith and Robert Barton, signed there and then. But the others hadn't signed. The other two that weren't there hadn't signed the British copy. So Tom Jones came around to Hans Place the next morning for the two outstanding delegates to sign it. But Eamon Duggan had already left and he had gone back to Dublin on the mailboat <laughs> with the Irish copy to present it to de Valera. So... They decided, one of the, Kathleen McKenna said, do you know what we have? They signed the programme from the Royal Albert Hall and in 1921 version of cut and paste, yeah. they took they the name, cut it they cut paste. it out <laughs> and they pasted it on to the British copy of the, um, of, the, of the treaty. So where do these two documents normally live when they're not here at the exhibition? The British copy is in Kew Gardens, the National Archives in Kew Gardens and the Irish copy is in um, the National Archives in Dublin. And so how many times have they been brought together like this since they were signed? 
This is the first time in 100 years? Yes. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then we move through and we take the visitor through the, the 18 articles of the treaty, the six main areas from public finances, military compensation, Northern Ireland and the Boundary Commission. Um, and then we present international reaction. This was quite huge across the world um, in terms of, you know, it made the front pages in New York and in Washington, all over the world. Because you know, all of a sudden, the notion of empire was beginning to shift and change. And then we have some beautiful, beautiful moving images um, from, from Pathé and other, um, from, from 1921, um, as well as uh, newspaper uh, cuttings. In the exhibition that we're standing in right now in London, this has already been on display in Dublin, is that no, right? Oh, no. Wait, no, it's going to be. Yeah. Yes. So we brought it to London first, because on this day 100 years ago, cool. negotiations opened, and it will come to Dublin on the 6th of December, um, which is the day that the, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed in London, but will open in Dublin on that day. That was Orla McBride there from the National Archives in Ireland. I'm now going to head downstairs here at the British Academy uh, to catch up with Catherine Martin, who's the Irish Culture Minister. Explain for people who don't know why for you this, this uh, anniversary of the centenary is so important. Well, today, actually, you know, it's it's a hundred years to to the very day that the 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 plenipotentiaries um, from Ireland entered Downing Street uh, for the very first time to to commence the negotiations, which which would become the Anglo-Irish um, Treaty. It's a significant moment, really, in our in our shared history, historical um, moment. Um, and I I almost feel like a, it's, it's it's a privilege to be here to be walking in in their footsteps a hundred hundred years later, and and the 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 exhibition it's 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 fascinating. Um, not only does it I suppose. Um, Recall uh, with documents and memos, um, I suppose, the historical significance of negotiations and an insight into that in a historical context. But there's also a very personal element to it as well. Um, and actually, they they negotiated not far far fr from from here, from the British Academy, where the exhibition is. They they lived in Hans Place and Cadogan um, Gardens. But um, you can see anything from details on the telephone lines that they set up for the two houses of the negotiators to to menus, um, to, to, um, to, to car hire. Um, it's, it's just incredible. You get a real insight to what life was like for them. And there's remarkable video footages uh, as well. There were almost, um, there was great importance. It was almost like everyone was enthralled um, by what was happening here and what started happening here um, 100 years ago. And even the, the, the newspaper headlines worldwide, um, that struck me as well, you know, when, when the treaty actually was, was signed, the, the significance of that worldwide, you know. So it's a, quite, quite the moment in our, in our shared history. And great to see the collaboration between our National Archives and the National Archives um, UK and the British Academy, because I think that has allowed... Um, a, a deeper insight uh, or understanding of the significance of the event too. I suppose you get to see both sides' interpretation of the same events and the same conversations, and quite often they're not, not, they're not necessarily the same thing. I wonder, um, given your experience now of being in government, there's something uh, amazing about seeing all those handwritten notes and memos and that sort of thing. In these days, emails and WhatsApps just aren't as evocative, are they? They don't place you quite the same. When when in a hundred years' time exhibitions are done of what's happening in, in politics now, it, it doesn't feel quite so real, does it? No, and um, I, I think what struck me there as well in, in, is, is seeing the, the notes that were passed 
um, from one person to the another, to see the layout of, of the table, who sat opposite who, or in the teams, or the negotiating teams, who sat beside each other, uh, to doodles and sketches <laughs> that, that were, were, were drawn. I, I found myself thinking I was a negotiator in the programme for government back home, the lead negotiator um, for, for the, the Green Party last year, and I started thinking, gosh, did I hold, did I hold on to enough documents of those exchanges? Because quite often it's the exchanges, the unofficial exchanges, that tell you a lot about the actual um, event um, and really let you give you that insight to how they were thinking. Um, and I find that really fascinating. You didn't do any doodles on the side of those negotiation notes, did you? Last year I didn't do No, I'm not, I'm not a doodler. <laughs> I might have done some written, but, but I'm not a doodler. And just finally, looking 100 years into the future, do you think... Uh, the, the, the status as it is now will continue for another 100 years or do you think that in 100 years' time Ireland will be a united island? I, 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 I don't have a crystal ball. I don't, I don't know where, where that will go. Um, but but, but what, what I see is a evolving relationship, an evolving friendship. Um, I, I see one of hope um, and, and, and looking at this ex exhibition reminds, it gives me more hope uh, and, uh, and, ins and inspiration too. Um, and I, I think, you know, the main, no matter, the difficulties that may present now in 2021, the main hope for me is that just like they sat down uh, across the table from each other um, this time 100 years ago, we can still have those conversations difficult as they may be sometimes but we, we, we will find ways um, through that and navigate those waters together. Catherine Martin the Irish Culture Minister talking through her reflections on 100 years since the beginning of the negotiations on the Anglo-Irish Treaty up next Adrian O'Neill the Irish Ambassador to London looking back 100 years but also looking at what's happening right now and his hopes that the current negotiations going on between London and Dublin are carried out and he says in good faith. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. This is Matt Chorley on Times Radio at the British Academy where an exhibition has just opened to mark a hundred years since the start of the negotiations which led to the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty ending the War of Independence in Ireland and paving the way for an independent Irish free state. Earlier we heard from Orla McBride from the National Archives of Ireland and Catherine Martin, the Irish Culture Minister. But now I'm going to catch up with Adrian O'Neill, the Irish Ambassador to London. The treaty and, you know, what they negotiated and what they agreed there became the baseline for a new relationship between an independent Ireland, an independent state. We're a very old nation, but we're still a very new state, comparatively speaking. So the treaty is the baseline for a new relationship between an independent Ireland and the United Kingdom. And we've had 100 years in that relationship. Um, relative to the history of Britain, that is a comparatively very small period of time. Um, but I think even in that 100 years, we've seen such an evolving story. And I think to, to appreciate and, uh, you know, the significance of that evolution, it's good to take time out and reflect and say, well, this is where it all began. Um, and these, this is the kind of context in which these men, and they were indeed largely men, uh, negotiated what, what, what transpired to be the future that, 
that, that we share and that, we're, and that we are continuing in our own time to evolve and develop. I suppose it's that evolve and develop that, that I sort of keep coming back to, isn't it? Uh, even a hundred years after they thought there was a resolution to the to the ongoing uh, question of, of home rule and uh, an independent Ireland, the relationship between London and Dublin is, is as, perhaps not as fraught as ever, but still pretty full. And it's your job to try and smooth those relations over. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's always a work in progress. <laughs> you know, that, that's the truth. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Collins. Collins described the treaty, which he negotiated as freedom to achieve freedom. Um, you know, for the Irish negotiators, in terms of their negotiating objectives, it, you know, it was an imperfect agreement. Um, they didn't get everything they wanted, either in terms of the, the, their position within the empire, the association with the crown, or indeed in relation to, to Northern Ireland. Uh, but they, they got, in, in their view, they got as much as could be, could be achieved, and the alternative was you know, a very uh, uh, unappealing alternative, namely a return to war. So, you know, it 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 is it is always it's a work in progress. It's an evolving story. Um, uh, but 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 where, when you think where we have come from and the issues that we have navigated and we have worked our way through, uh, including of course the conflict in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, for over thirty years until nineteen ninety eight with the Good Friday Agreement, uh, another seminal agreement. Um, uh, that kind of creates a new chapter in Irish history. Um, and, and again, you know, the, the Good Friday Agreement was part of a peace process. It is just that. It is a process. Um, and we have to continue to work at that uh, every day and deal with the challenges and manage the challenges uh, as we find them. I suppose the big difference is, you know, back in 1921, when Lloyd George said to the Irish delegation, well, you know, are you going to sign this treaty? You know, what is it? Do, do I, you know, are we are we going back to war or not? At least the alternative, the alternative now to our, you know, when we do have differences, you know, it's not we're not looking we're not looking at conflict, we're not looking at war, uh, etc. We have we have found ways of working through our differences, uh, you know, diplomatically in a spirit, as the minister said earlier, of of, of friendship and neighbourliness. I mean, there are some people who who are worried that the the tensions around Brexit. The threats, uh, as some see it, to the Good Friday Agreement could lead to, uh, well, we've seen some violent protests and it, it could lead to a return to what, some of what we've seen in the past. And I suppose the point is that 100 years ago they thought that they were preventing a return to war and then was it 40, 50 years later you then get the, the, the troubles and, and, and that lasted for another three decades. So the, if you sort of add up the sum total of it all, you know, violence and uh, um, trouble has been, you know, a big chunk of that of that time. Are you concerned when people raise those uh, fears about a return to, to you know, this, whether it is a return to the troubles or just outbreaks of violence? You, is that something that worries you as a, as a sort of consequence of the, the impasse on Brexit? Well, I, I don't think we, we, we should ever be complacent. Uh, I think, you know, I think great vigilance is required in terms of the Good Friday Agreement. I think great vigilance is required um, by both governments as co-guarantors of that agreement to make sure that we continue to move forward and don't move backwards. So, so I'm, I'm, we're never complacent. Um, it is it is a process of peace and reconciliation, and reconciliation certainly will it will take. I mean, in, in you know several generations, I think before we have successfully concluded that project. So, but without being complacent, I don't honestly believe that there is that we that there there is a real risk. 
um, of returning to kind of the appalling violence that we saw in, in the 70s and the 80s and so forth. I think, I think, I don't think the people of Northern Ireland uh, would would allow that uh, to happen. Um, but you know, there, but but there's still no doubt there are communities in Northern Ireland who feel that they haven't fully shared uh, the peace dividend, um, and they are communities which uh, you know on occasions um, can be can be restive um, and kind of feel aggrieved. Um, uh, and so on. So, you know, we have we have to address their concerns. We have to address those issues, uh, and we shouldn't be complacent. But, but I don't honestly think that there is a that, that we that we face a real risk of returning to that kind of awful violence that we did at the Troubles. One of the striking things, looking back at the way policy was conducted a hundred years ago, it was all, you know, formal papers and beautiful handwriting and all of that. And and right now, we're apparently having diplomacy by Twitter uh, between uh, Simon Coveney, the Irish uh, minister, and, and Lord Frost. Does that make your job harder, that it's not pieces of paper going across desks and instead it's tweets fired out into the Twitter sphere? Well... I guess diplomacy is constantly is constantly <laughs> is constantly evolving. I mean, diplomacy is very very different now in the twenty first century than it was, you know, kind of in in the medieval period when it was kind of a uh, first a uh, first first developed. Um, and we've you know diplomats have got to have have got to move with the evolution in the technology um, and in the modes of communication. What what I would say is that um, and I think this question that you asked with the minister earlier, I do think that the historians of the future. Are going to have a much more difficult job than you know than the historians of of the past, um, you know, um, in terms of you know historians when they're looking at events a hundred years ago, even forty or fifty years ago, are looking at complete documentary records, files that were assiduously kept. You can literally go take out the file, follow the chronology of reports that were written, etc., and so on, and have a fairly good sense of 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 the story, what actually happened. But I guess now, uh, in terms of if we were if the historian Thirty or forty years' time is looking is, is trying to find out basically what happened, uh, trying to trying to put that together from the, from the various fragmentary in terms of you know some reports are sent by email, some are just WhatsApps that you that, that you send off etc to get a quick report back to the system of what happened uh, etc. Um, uh, you know it's it's media commentary, it's 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 the Twitter sphere etc. I mean the, the the challenge of the story in the forty fifty years time is going to be much it's going to be much greater. Absolutely right. I just want to, I should ask you, obviously Lord Foss is making his big speech in Lisbon. Uh, what is it that you and Ireland would like to see from that? I think, I'd like, I mean, I, I do think that this week the Commission are going to come forward with some far-reaching proposals to address the real issues that are um, that have been experienced on the ground by businesses and citizens in relation to the protocol. I mean, the Commission have been listening very seriously to, to those issues and have been engaging with them. And I think this, what they will produce this week, I think, will is a, is a bona fide, genuine response to address to address those issues. So. I would hope that once those proposals come forward, there'll be an opportunity for a good faith dialogue between the EU and the UK to come to a resolution uh, of the impasse. Because I think continuing the impasse, uh, I mean, does no favours um, to the people of Northern Ireland. I mean, we've, you know, there is, as I said, we can never be complacent. Uh, we don't want to destabilise Northern Ireland any further than is already the case. So hopefully. Once those proposals are published, that will lead to a period of a good faith dialogue between uh, the UK and the EU with, with, with a serious effort being made to bridge the differences between both sides. Um, I mean, you know, and in relation to this, if we're going to reach agreement here, there needs to be compromise by both sides. Would you characterise so far 
this process has been uh, f- filled with good faith? Look, I think, I think, I think, I think both, both, both in both in Brussels uh, and in London and indeed in Northern Ireland, you know, all of the politicians who are engaging upon this are doing so on the basis of what they think are in the best interests of their country or their community, and I don't think it's, you know, I, and I wouldn't characterise, you know, uh, any one side or other as 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 operating, you know, kind of in in, in greater or lesser spirit uh, of of good faith, um, and but I do think. I do think we should kind of recognise that there is a real opportunity now over the next few weeks to resolve this issue uh, and, and move on to a much more harmonious phase in relations, both between the EU and the UK, but also, I think, between you know, all, all of these islands, between Ireland and the UK and you know, within Northern Ireland itself. So I really hope that opportunity is seized. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.